vomit, and exclusion. Vomit and exclusion. Now that I have your attention, I don't think there are two more visceral words. Vomit and exclusion. And for the sake of the gag reflex in the room, uh, I'll spare you my many vomit stories, which is apparent. My uh, vomit narrative repertoire has grown and multiplied through the years. Uh, but I won't give the graphic details, but I have cleaned up, vomit smeared along the hallway. <laughs> it looked like a murder scene. I have caught vomit in a hat in the back seat of a car because too many red vines were eaten at the soccer game. So I've, yeah. <laughs> I wasn't gonna name names, but. So I've, I've cleaned it, I've caught it, I've done it, I've seen it, and vomit's never, never good. It always smells bad, it always makes me gag. I think vomiting's about as base as the human body gets. Now pair that with exclusion. Being left out, being overlooked, being ignored, that feeling you get in the pit of your stomach when you're on the outside looking in. Maybe your face is pressed against the glass, like, oh, what would it be like to be in that? Included, known, seen. Or maybe even worse, it's being in the room with people, but feeling like you're on the outside looking in. That feeling of exclusion never feels good, whether it's in a friend group, whether it's on the playground at recess, if it happens in the workplace, or it happens in the home, or it happens in a church, exclusion never feels good. It always hits hard. Vomit and exclusion. Like, those are visceral words. Those are gut punch ideas. And you're like, why are we talking about this? Why are we talking about this in church? Here we are in the seventh and final of the seven letters to the churches in Revelation. We've done it, finally, finished. Seventh letter, the opening chapters of the book of Revelation. And if you've been with us for the past, I think it's eight weeks now, because we did a baptism week, We've covered a lot of ground and we've heard and seen pictures of Jesus and words from Jesus for these churches. So, so far, we've heard Jesus say to the church in Ephesus, he said to them, you've lost your first love. He told the church of Smyrna, don't fear your tribulation and your poverty, but don't fear. Amen. He told the church of Pergamum, he talked about the deforming nature of their idolatry. He was the one who stands with the two-edged sword and warns us about the danger of idolatry. To the church of Thyatira, he talked about the deforming nature of sexual immorality. And we had a week where we talked about sex. Remember that? To the church of Sardis, he said that they looked alive, but they actually were dead. And he told them to wake up to the church of 
Philadelphia, the ones that were weak and weary, he told them to hold on. So many words of comfort and challenge, so many words of consolation and critique. So if you have a Bible, one last time, turn to Revelation chapter 3. We're going to read the last and final of the seven letters. This one is written to the church of Laodicea. I think I have a map up there too if you want to see where Laodicea shows up on the scene. We've kind of been going clockwise around the seven cities. It's like, what's the last message that Jesus shares? Well, it's kind of a shocking one because Jesus talks about vomit and exclusion and not in a good way if there is a good way to talk about that. And I would argue that maybe it's one of the most shocking messages that Jesus speaks to any church. Jesus wrote us a letter? What did he say? He said, you make me want to vomit. And he said, you have made me an excluded outsider. Revelation chapter 3. Verse 14. It says, And to the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, The words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I'm rich, I've prospered, and I need nothing not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich, and white garments so that you may clothe yourself, and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen, and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock, If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne. As I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So after his opening words, the pretty typical phrasing and imagery, Jesus, he dives right in, right? Verse 15, he says, I know your works. And we've heard that before. This is typical. This is kind of the formula that he has done through almost all of the letters. He says, I know your works. But then typically with the other churches, what he would say is, I know your works. And then he would go from there to explain the things that were good and the encouragement and the things that he would call out of them to be continued on, positive, things worthy of encouragement, things worthy of of commendation, but not this time, not with this church. Instead, he goes to the visceral image number one, the vomit. He says, I know your works, you're neither cold nor hot, would that you were either cold or hot, so because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now again, I'm reading from the ESV, and I will just say that's a pretty tame translation. It's a nice, I will spit you out of my mouth. Blah. Like that's, that's not the word. The, the Greek word is the word emeo. It means to vomit. 
Sometimes the Bible translators don't want to be too graphic or too shocking, but that's the word. Jesus says, I will vomit you out of my mouth. And I would say that Jesus in his love calls out their lukewarm state. Now, many of you may have heard this verse before or read this verse before. Uh, I would say that I've heard people talk about this verse in ways that I don't think are helpful. Uh, I've heard pastors preach this to say that God wants you hot or cold, meaning he wants you either passionate for him or fully against him. I'm like, I don't think God wants you fully against him. It doesn't make any sense. God doesn't want you passionately following him or ice is a pagan. Like that's not, that's not his heartbeat. Rather, I think what he is saying here is, and I would say other commentators would agree with me, that he's saying, I want you to be useful. I want you to be profitable. I want you to be good for something. So it's not just pick a lane, either really virtuous or really wicked, or really hot or really cold, because then we can do something with you. But it's, it's, it's a desire to actually serve a good, positive function, to be useful. Uh, a little geographical um, information about this city, the, ch- the church, the city of Laodicea. We know this from history and archaeology. I think I have a little map here. Uh, you see Laodicea. Up to the north, there was a town called Hierapolis, which sounds like a Marvel town, maybe, but Hierapolis had hot springs. They were known for their hot springs. They were known for the, the, the goodness and the richness of their hot water and the medicinal purposes even of their hot springs. Laodicea did not have any access to its own water source. But to the south in the city of Colossae, where the, the letter of the Colossians was written to, they had a source of cold, fresh water. So Laodicea didn't have its own water. Uh, Hierapolis had the hot mineral water. Uh, Colossae had the cold spring water. Laodicea had to pipe in the water from the north and from the south. And if you can imagine what happens, and you can find, actually, I think there's a picture. There's the remains of the aqueduct there. You can see where they would pipe in the water. But if you can imagine piping in water from the hot springs in the north over miles and cold water from the south over miles, hot water piped in for a while gets cold. And cold water piped in over a while gets warm. And so, again, the point of this lukewarmness Well, I'll just quote one scholar, Jeffrey Wyma. He says, the point of the rebuke is not lack of zeal or enthusiasm. If it were lukewarm, if it were, lukewarm would at least have been better than cold. The point is rather rather the utter worthlessness of what the congregation has done and is doing. The point of lukewarm water is simply that it is disgusting. Or to put it another way, the church should not have matched up with its water supply. And Jesus calls them out and says, what's happening among you is not actually helpful. If it were hot spring water, that would be helpful. If it were cold spring water, that would be helpful. But we got this lukewarmness that is good for nothing but inducing a stomachache. Such strong words, you make me want to vomit. 
Now there's another image then that goes with it, and it's later in the passage. Hop down to verse 20. And I think, again, it's another famous Bible passage that often gets misapplied. Revelation 3.20. He goes on to say, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and him with me. Now, many have heard that verse before or maybe even used that verse before for evangelism. Speaking to someone who does not yet know Jesus, and the invitation is, is Jesus is standing at the door of your heart, knocking to come in, believe in him, confess your sin that Jesus may come in. And again, the idea of inviting others to come and trust in Jesus is a beautiful thing. It's how we come to faith. But I would just say, don't use this verse for that idea. Because in context, here's what's happening. Jesus is standing at the door. Jesus is knocking on the door from the outside. But he isn't on the outside knocking on the door of the heart of the unbeliever. What's shocking in this letter is that Jesus is standing on the outside knocking on the door of his church. Like what an oxymoron. How did Jesus get outside of his church? How do you have a Christian church where Jesus is no longer welcome? How can you have a Christian church where Jesus is on the outside? How can you have a Christian church where Jesus is excluded? It's the same way to say, how can you have a Christian church that makes Jesus want to vomit? This is a deeply troubling scene. All throughout the book of Revelation, Jesus says that he is the one who is walking among the lampstands, which is his church, the different churches. And he's walking among the lampstands, the risen Lord Jesus, the amen, the faithful and true witness. And he's saying, I can't get in. Hello. I'm on the outside knocking. He's been pushed out of the doors. Houston, we have a problem. Jesus is no longer in the building. Which should make us say, what was happening in Laodicea that would prompt Jesus to have those kinds of responses? What, would prompt, what was going on in their community that would make Jesus use a vomit metaphor and say that he was on the outside of the door of the church knocking to come in? That's a great question. And the answer is found in what he says. It's in verse 17. I'm going to read it again for you. Jesus quotes them. He says, For you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched and pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may be rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and the shame of your nakedness may not be seen and salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. And I think in those verses, in those words, in that section of the letter, we begin to see what true lukewarmness is. If I may, lukewarmness, according to Jesus, is spiritual self-sufficiency. Human self-sufficiency. 
And it echoes loudly as Jesus quotes them back their very words. Apparently, the Laodiceans were known to say this, hey, I'm rich, I've prospered, and then here's the kicker, I need nothing. I would say that begins to summarize the mantra of the lukewarm life. I am rich, I have prospered, I need nothing. A pastor, Kevin DeYoung, summarizes it this way. He says that lukewarmness is living your life as if you needed nothing from God. Like, I don't need him. <laughs> I'm good. I'm rich. I've prospered. I need nothing. Oh, my friends, now we're talking here. Here's what we know historically about the city of Laodicea, in addition to their water. We know that they had wealth. They were a banking center, a financial hub for the region. They had lots of wealth. They also were a, a center for textile, manufacturing, fabric, and fashion. They had lots of wool. They also were a center of medicine. In fact, there's some sort of uh, sources that talk about a, a famous eye ointment that they had for medicinal purposes so that you can see. Which in, in many ways was awesome. Like, like I wanna live in that town where there's wealth, a center of commerce and finance, there's textiles, there's fashion, there's medicine, like they have their needs met. But then Jesus comes along and says, guess what? You're missing something. Me. <laughs> you need something. You need someone. And the delusion is you don't think you need it because you have all your needs met. You have everything you need. And yet, hello, he's saying, you may have wealth, but you don't realize that you're actually poor. And he says, you may have clothing, you may have wool, but you don't realize that you're actually naked. And you may have all the medicine that you need, but actually, you're blind and you can't see. You can't see your true condition. You can't see your true need. You don't know what's going on because you've got all the other stuff covering your life. And you go comfortable, and you grow complacent, and you grow to put your trust in those things rather than me. Jesus says, come to me. I'm the one who gives true riches. Come to me. I'm the one who can clothe your nakedness. Come to me. I have the salve for your blindness to make you and have your eyes see again. The invitation is to come buy from him. And again, uh, lest you get twisted on what he's saying there, uh, I remind you about the economy of God. He's not saying, come, you've got to pay it out. The prophet Isaiah talks about come and buying without money. The invitation is to come to him, that he would be the source of our need, that he would meet our needs. But there's a situation that exists where, where a church community becomes so wealthy, becomes so self-reliant, becomes so, everything's good? That it pushes Jesus right out because we don't need him anymore. Again, I love another 
author, scholar, William Mounts, he says, in their blind self-sufficiency, they had, as it were, excommunicated the risen Lord from their congregation. In an act of unbelievable condescension, he requests permission to enter and reestablish fellowship. Like what happens when a church kicks Jesus out? Because they're saying, we're self-sufficient. We need nothing. We've got everything we need. And my friends, the scariest thing about this to me is this sounds so American. Like this is not just Laodicea. <laughs> like, we're rich. We've prospered. We don't really need anything. We can do the, we can actually do church with Jesus outside. That's scary. Oftentimes, we, we, we love in the church to paint certain sins as vile. Those kinds of, like, this is the sin that would make Jesus sick, whatever that may be for you. Like, historically, it's been, oh, divorce, abortion, adultery, sex before marriage, drunkenness, voting for a certain person or party. That's the stuff that would make Jesus sick. Jesus says, this is what makes me sick. When pretty people, accomplished people, proud people, put together people say, I have no need. It's when we live our life as though we need nothing from God. That's what makes Jesus sick to his stomach. That's what makes Jesus not from the outside. Now I know like those words, these pictures are pretty, like they're pretty harsh, pretty strong. But I hope you hear Jesus's heart here because these words are written and spoken in deep love. They're written in his heart of love for this church. As has been said before, like if Jesus didn't love you, he would stop speaking to you. Like the worst thing that could happen is Jesus to stop, but he keeps going, he keeps engaging, he keeps writing, he keeps speaking, he keeps knocking. He counsels them to come and buy from him, to look to him to meet their needs. In verse 20, like the offer is still open. The invitation to this church still stands. If anyone hears my voice, opens the door, I will come in to him and eat with him. Jesus wants to share a table with us. There's a sense of personal invitation. Table fellowship, table fellowship in this culture was deeply personal. To share a meal with someone meant everything. It was purposeful. Breaking bread, sharing a meal, dining together was a declaration of fellowship and intimacy. And Jesus is saying, I want that with you. I want that with your church. Not to be on the outside looking in, not to be excluded from our lives, not to be excluded from our church. His desire isn't just to forgive sins so that people won't go to hell. He does forgive our sins. It does have ramifications for eternity. But he wants daily, personal, intimate fellowship 
with his people, where the very needs of our life are addressed to him, offered to him. That our first run, our first go, is not just to rely upon our own money or our own resources or our own wisdom or our own way, but rather to rely upon, upon him. Those that Jesus loves, he disciplines. That's what he says here, verse 19. Those who he loves, he reproves. So he stands at the door and knocks. And he says, he who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. One of my favorite quotable pastors, Tim Keller, reminds us, if you want God's grace, all you need is need. All you need is nothing. But that kind of spiritual humility is hard to muster. We come to God saying, look at all I've done, or maybe look at all I've suffered. God, however, wants us to look to him. Here's what we need, church. <laughs> we need need. To be aware of our need. Jesus says, that's what I can work with. Seven messages, seven letters. He who has an ear to hear, she who has an ear to hear, may you hear what the Spirit is saying. So here's how I want to end today. I want to give us a chance to respond. Give a chance for us to respond to the knock of Jesus. So I'm going to invite Parfait and Matt, if you guys want to come back up. And again, I'm not going to do this in a way to embarrass anyone or to call anyone out. I'm not going to put you on the microphone to say anything. Um, but I want to give opportunity for a response. That we as a church could say, Jesus, we have need. <laughs> so I don't know if you guys want to as we get going, give me, give me a little of the next song that's going to come. But I was praying this morning, been praying all week, about a couple different specific ways in which people could respond this morning. Again, I'm not here to make you uncomfortable. Well, I am here to make you uncomfortable. <laughs> but not to call you out. Sometimes we need to have an embodied response to, to the Lord, and we need to allow others to know our desire to receive in the midst of our need. So here, here are the three areas this morning that I want to invite you to and maybe to respond to. Um, one, Jesus, I have need in my marriage. And you're like, I don't want anyone to know that I have a need in my marriage. But maybe that's where you need to start, is I have need in my marriage. And I don't know what that could mean. It could mean a variety of things for different people. But if you have need in your marriage, would be number one. Number two, if you have need with your finances. And I'll add to that your job. And then the third area, and this is the word that I felt like the Spirit put on my heart this morning, is the word travail. And I don't ever use that word. I had to look it up so I knew what it meant. The word travail means painful or laborious effort. 
But if you feel like there's a place in your life of travail where there's been some painful, laborious effort, you're like, I need help, Jesus, in this thing that doesn't seem to be going where I hope it to be. So again, I'm going to ask you to respond, and we want to pray for you. If you're someone who needs, if you have need in your marriage, would you be willing to come forward to the front and just stand up here, and we want to come around you and pray for you. We're not going to broadcast it. We're not going to single you out. If you have need in your marriage, would you come up? Also, I'm going to invite, if you have need in your finances or in your job, would you come up to the front? And if you have need of travail, there's something in your life that has been, what's the word, painful or laborious effort, would you come up? I'm going to ask, if you have need, would you face forward so that we know you're not just coming up to pray? And I'm going to ask, so face forward if you have need. And I'm going to ask some of our other elders, C-team, other people, would you just come alongside our brothers and sisters here? So again, in this, I'm going to do this because I can't tell who's facing which way. If, if you're here to receive prayer, would you just put your hand up? You don't have to raise it real high, but just put your hand up so we can see who that is. Yeah, okay. Could you come around those that have their hand up? And let's just, let's pray for them. Yeah, Jesus, we thank you for our brothers and sisters here who would come up and say they have need today. That it's scary to get out of a seat and to walk in front of a room of people and say, I don't have it all together. So God, I pray first for those that are here for their marriage, Jesus. God, thank you for honesty. God, I pray against hopelessness and despair. God, I pray against those who feel like we're just stuck here and it's never going to get any better. And no one really knows. So God, I pray for them today. Jesus, I pray for open doors of communication. God, I pray for those that may need some counseling help. God, I pray for those that may need to ask a friend to come and and help intervene. God, we pray for restoration of, of, of the wounds that fester between a husband and a wife. That you desire healing and you desire new things, God. Jesus, I pray for those who have need in finances or a job. And it's humbling to say that we need that. And I pray you'd, you'd see them this morning, Lord Jesus. They're waving their hand, saying, God, I need your help. God, I need, I need a job. Or maybe it's a different job. Or maybe it's a job that's been applied for, but it has that you haven't heard yet. God, we need your help. God, we pray for our brothers and sisters where it's not adding up financially. Oh, God, hear our cry. Lord, you use your people, but I pray for even just some surprise, blessing, provision, 
generosity to show up, Lord, for them. Things they didn't plan on, Lord. Lord, but may you open up the windows of heaven and give them what they need. I pray for those, uh, those nights of fear where they can't go to sleep because they're not sure what's going to happen. God, I pray for your peace, the peace that passes understanding to guard their hearts and minds in Jesus. God, would you connect resources to need in supernatural ways, Jesus. And Lord, I also pray for my brothers and sisters. God, I pray for those who may be experiencing travail. It's just hard, and it's been hard for a really long time. And they've done their best, they've tried their hardest, and it's still not not working out and they're just they're they're struggling and they're working and they're striving and they're laboring oh god first lord may, may they know that you see them you haven't forgotten them jesus come i, I pray meet them you understand travail jesus better than all of us May you have fellowship with them in their suffering, in their pain, and you wipe away their tears. May you breathe the hope of the Holy Spirit into those places. And I pray, Lord, for for some breakthroughs. Lord, things that have stood in the way, Lord, that you would knock down, things that have been barriers that need to be pushed through, Jesus, then we can't do it. Only, not by might, not by power, but by your Holy Spirit. May your Holy Spirit do that. Jesus, we thank you for our friends. We thank you for this community. We thank you in the marriages, in the jobs, in the finances, in the places of travail. We offer all of this to you, Jesus. Come, come Holy Spirit. Even now, pour out the Father's love. Remind us, be the lifter of our heads. Would you bring good things to your children who ask? God, for the ways maybe that we've kept you outside of not asking not displaying our need, thinking that we can be reliant on ourselves. Lord, forgive us. May there be a a passion to run quickly to the cross and to run quickly to you. So God, I just thank you for these folks that would come today. God, may they know that they're in a body that cares about them. I pray for even some follow-up conversations to come. Holy Spirit, hear the cry of your people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.